All right, well, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. Um, uh, uh, my brain just kind of went, went blank there for a second, sorry. Um, that happens from time to time. Um, but uh, we're going to go ahead and get started talking about uh, uh, the biblical corrective process, uh, still talking about that, actually moving into the, the real corrections part of it. Uh, which is, which is important. Uh, we've, you know, talked about the rebuke, the reproof, uh, conviction, um, confession of it, the, the restoration slash reconciliation portion, uh, that involves, uh, a lot of the repentance, seeking forgiveness, um, accepting consequences. But, uh, now we're getting to a point of where all of those things have been done. We know what we have over here is sin and it's a sinful habit. And we need to now replace it with the biblical habit. And how does that go about working? And we're going to take a look at probably the classic passage um, in Scripture that identifies this um, in just a moment. But let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. We'll get uh, started tonight. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for an opportunity to come study your word. And Lord, I just pray that tonight as we... Endeavor to, uh, please you by, uh, being here, listening. The Lord would be attentive, uh, that we would uh, be willing and ready to heed what your spirit teaches us. And that Lord, we would, uh, not disregard any of this, not hear the correction, not follow the correction, but Lord, use these things in our life to please you and honor you and glorify you with all that we say and do. I thank you again, Lord, for um, uh, just uh, those that are here and pray for those, Lord, that are still uh, feeling ill and under the weather. Pray that they would get uh, better soon. They'd be able to be back with us. And again, Lord, I just uh, pray that this time would be pleasing unto you. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we began talking about uh, replacing uh, the biblical um, or replacing the sinful actions, the sinful behavior uh, with biblical actions, biblical behavior, uh, and it goes for, for thought processes. It goes for words. It goes for, for attitude. Whenever there is anything that is identified as unrighteousness, uh, transgression, uh, trespass, iniquity, wickedness, I mean, any of the, the descriptors that God uses to define sin, uh, we need to immediately, once these things have gone through the process of of, uh, of uh, the rebuke, and the, you know, the conviction, all of that takes place. We have to go through the process of okay. Now we've we, we, we've told people, uh, we've asked people for forgiveness. We've told people we're going to change. We, we we've uh, we've prayed to God. We we've, we've uh, if you will reaffirmed um, uh, our faith. What we're going to do um, now? We get to the the nitty gritty part. Now we've got to get into the change. And uh, again, change just does not happen. Uh, as the scripture says, and it talks about can an Ethiopian change his skin and a leopard change his spots, uh, using that to, to kind of get the, the idea and the concept of uh, change is hard, uh, change is difficult, change is not going to be something that is going to be uh, easy, it's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, we, we have to understand that this is going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take uh, intense focus of our mind. It's going to take a true look at our hearts, uh, what our affections are, what affects our heart. 
uh, what our desires are, what our will is, and is it matching God's will? Um, uh, all of these things, we, we have to begin to, to go through this process. So let's uh, just turn over, uh, just briefly, just kind of get some understanding a little bit about correction. Uh, we're going to get to that main passage that I referenced in just a minute, but I want to want to establish a couple of things. So let's turn over the book of jo- uh, Job. The book of Job, in Job chapter 5, Job makes a, a very uh, profound statement here about correction. And there's, there's a lot in Scripture about correction. Um, and we see here in verse um, verse 17, it says, in Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Happy is the man whom God correcteth. Excuse me, this isn't Job that's, that's saying this, but he's saying, Happy is the man whom God correcteth, therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Now, obviously, in this, uh, in this part here, um, his, his friends are basically telling him he's in sin. And if he's, uh, if you will, bucking that, uh, uh, um, that correction that there's going to be a problem. But he, he makes it clear in verse 17 that it's happy is the man whom God correcteth. Now, correction is not something that human beings receive well. They just don't. They just don't. I mean, you, you, you think about uh, how when you you were doing something in school, you put together a project, you put uh, you studied for a test, you did everything that you could, and then you you were hoping to to get that hundred percent or A or or whatever it may be, or maybe you were just one of those students that you were just praying you'd get a C, uh, whatever it was. Um, you, you put all that effort in there, and it comes back, and it comes back with the red marks comes back with the corrections. I remember um, in in uh, high school having to learn all of the uh, corrective uh, marks that they would make on our papers about paragraph and run-on sentences and combining and changes and uh, essentially what we would refer to in the legal world as red lines, red line changes. Um, and, uh, not everybody likes that because again, they, they, they have this negative connotation of, well, we shouldn't be using red pens. We need to use, you know, more, more affirming colors and stuff like that. But, but here's the issue. It's not about the color of the pen. It's not about, uh, uh, whether it's going to be offensive to the person or not. It's about whether or not that person's going to receive the correction. Uh, if a person can't receive correction, we've got a bigger problem. You know, if it's something small that comes out, but that person is unwilling to receive correction, they've got a bigger problem with Jesus Christ than just that problem. That problem is a symptom of a greater disease that's at the heart. And I guarantee you that it is something that is uh, pretty serious. And many times it's it's bitterness. Many times it's uh, uh, um, things of rebellion. It, it, there's all sorts of things that it can be that's in a person's heart, that some of the other things are just simple, uh, if you will, symptoms. You know, when when you've got a a, a, um, a cold, you have symptoms. You have cold symptoms. Well, what's it telling you? It's telling you that you've got a virus that's, you know, having a, a giant party in your body at your expense. And, and you're not feeling well. And when serious things start happening in your, in, in your, um, uh, in your health, 
know, people start having pains in the arm and pains in the jaw and tightness in the chest and things like that, then it's, you know, automatically you start asking the questions, well, you're having a heart attack. Because it's sign of a, those are, those are symptoms of a, of a bigger issue. But when we're talking about correction here, there's an attitude that has to be there. First and foremost, whenever we talk about the corrective process, where you're having been told, this is sin, this is what you need to do, there cannot be this receiving of an offense. There cannot be this, oh, I'm offended that you told me that I did something wrong. That can't be there. It has to be this issue of, I'm going to be happy if God corrects me. My attitude's going to change. And notice, this is talking about happiness. Well, what's happiness? It's an emotional response. If the emotional response is anger, then that's the wrong emotion. We've got to check out what's going on. There may be some sadness, as we talked about, but there should be overall, you know, a sadness and then a happiness that that the Lord pointed it out and said, hey, don't do that. Because we understand that there are going to be consequences to that. And in today's day and age, everybody wants to do what they want to do with no consequences. That, that That's a common trend in this world today. Whatever I want to do, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do, and I, there's no consequences behind it. You know what I mean? You just take a look at the issue of, just say, abortion. Well, they want to do whatever they want to do, and this will be like, well, you know, uh, uh, I should be able to to, to do this Regardless, and, and, and because I'm not ready to do it, well then don't do the action in the first place. And if there's a problem with, with doing that action in the first place, again, we go back to a bigger issue. We go back to a bigger issue. So when we start looking at this here, he makes it very clear that, that, that there should be a response, that it shouldn't be something that is being pushed away, despising it. It should be something that should be received with happiness. Now, again, it may not be this like, oh, yay, I get corrected type thing. But it should be something that is is received and goes, well, well, well praise God that he he's still te- teaching me. If God doesn't correct you, there's a bigger issue. There's a bigger issue. Because God corrects those whom he loves. It says he chastens those whom he loves. So, so there's a, there, there's a big issue there. So when we get to this point, we realize that there has to be this, this, this response. It's going to be an emotional response, but we need to make sure that we're checking to make sure it's the right emotional response. Uh, turn over to, um, while we're in the, the neighborhood, let's turn to Psalm 39. Psalm 39, um, and in this passage, God again is talking about some things with correction. <clears throat> And he says here in Psalm 39, in verse 11, he says, When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth, surely every man is vanity. So here's the issue. The biggest problem about why people don't like correction is that nasty little P word, pride. That's the reason why nobody likes correction. And what has to happen is it has to disappear. 
So when God is saying he's going to rebuke and he's going to correct for iniquity, he's going to make sure that there is no pride that's going to be involved. Your pride is eliminated and humility and humbleness has to be brought to the forefront. Because he's here, he's saying, you know, all these people are like, oh, hey, you know, look at, look at how great I am and look at who I am. And then they get corrected. And then the end result is, is what? They get upset that they're corrected. That they can't do no wrong. If a person thinks that they can do no wrong and that they're always right, they're wrong. <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but, but therein lies the issue. You have to be willing to admit you're wrong. Like I said, uh, uh, you have to be willing to say those words. I was wrong. I apologize. Please forgive me. Those are some of the greatest words in the English language. They're, they're peacemaking. For the most part. They're peacemaking. Um, I actually have this little thing that I saw. It, it always makes me laugh. And it was talking about the three hardest things to say in the English language. And it said one was, uh, I'm sorry. One was, I was wrong. And then one was Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> it, it just makes me laugh because, it, that, that, you know, again, you look at that and you try to pronounce it and you're just like, you know, all over the board and, and, and trying to, trying to get it. And, um, it, it's the same thing with the other words, but, but God is saying, uh, when I do this, your pride is going to be put on hold. Your pride is going to be eliminated. It's going to, it's going to turn, it's, it's going to be turned away because it can't be part of the corrective process. If pride is inserted in the correction, correction is not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be something that, that hinders you. Take a look at another passage. Let's go over to Proverbs. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3, and again, this is just kind of setting the stage for certain things regarding correction. Proverbs chapter (coughs) 3, pardon me, in verse 11, it says, My son, despise uh, uh, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son, in whom he delighteth. Now, this is an important thing. Why did God give us parents? Was it to provide for you, feed you, clothe you, do things like that? No, it's to correct you. One of the greatest processes that you can do as a parent, whether you're a parent, past parent, grandparent, hopeful parent, maybe someday, who knows, regardless of what it is, when it comes to parenting, correction, correction is primary. Correction is part of parenting. We've all seen the child that has not been corrected in the Walmart. Used to be back in the day, I used to say Kmart, but you know, we don't have Kmarts nowadays. It's in the Walmart. Screaming and yelling and and, and throwing things and just, just having a general fit. And there's no corrective action being done. What does the Bible say about a child left to himself? Bring shame. 
bring shame. So when we begin to realize here that we have to begin to love that corrective process, we have to begin to yearn for it. We have to begin to ask for it. That's a tough thing to do. Lord, correct me if I'm wrong. Lord, show me. Lord, teach me. And he may send somebody in your life that may be a Nathan or whatever it is. But here, it makes it very clear that this father, this that he's put there for a reason. To correct a child. To correct a child. And it's the same same situation when you've got God the Father. He's correcting us. If we can't stand to be corrected by parents or by authorities or by our employer or by a teacher or professor uh, um, or, you know, the man of God that comes and points his finger in our face, whatever it is, if we can't stand that, then we've got a problem with God. We've got a problem understanding who he is as our father and that parental role that he plays. But he says here, he says, neither be weary of his correction. Neither be weary of his correction. And I'll say this, just to kind of define a little bit here about what we're talking about. You know, when we talk about correction, we're talking about identifying a fault that a person has and taking hold of the corresponding action to avoid it happening again. That's a long definition, but but, but I'll, I'll say it again. It's to identify a fault that we have and to be taught the corrective action, the correct action that needs to be done to avoid it from happening again. It's a replacement. It's a replacement, meaning that there should be no repetition of the fault. There should be no repetition of the fault. If the same fault keeps happening then something is wrong with the corrective action. Something is wrong. Either it's the wrong corrective action in place or whatever it may be. So as an example, somebody has uh, a serious mental health issue and they are contemplating suicide. I mean, yeah, I, I you know, jump right to the one of the more serious ones. Um, <clears throat> you know, Part of what we have to do as, as individuals, as Christians, and, and giving counsel from the Word of God, we have to show them the hope that is in Jesus Christ. We have to show them that, first and foremost, it's not their life to take. It's God's. So we have to go into that. But we also, at the same time, have to give them hope by showing them of the, if you will, the blessings of being faithful and being in the will of God. Majority of the time when people are are wanting to commit suicide, it's because they're outside of the will of God. It's outside of the will of God. And it's a thought process issue. They're not definitely not following what Paul told the church at Corinth about bringing their thoughts into captivity. And he says that very clearly about, you know, making sure that there is nothing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And that's exactly what suicide is. Saying, I know better and I'm going to end my life. And God says, did I tell you to do that? 
How do you know what you have in store for you? How do you know what's on the other side? You may be going through a difficult time now, but that's just the valley. What happens when you're on the mountaintop? You may be in the pit now, but but what about the arm of the Lord that's going to pull you out of that pit and place you on the rock of Jesus Christ? And you see so much more. So, 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 So there's always this hope that needs to be given that's there. But I will tell you this, there, there comes a point where people will just get weary of the correction. The over and 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 over corrective process. So when a person is dealing with a serious situation such as that, constant suicidal thoughts, here's the issue. And this is going to lead into something else that we're going to talk about when it comes to the corrective actions as soon as we get through some of this replacing part. Uh, but it comes down to forsaking. God says you have to forsake things. God said he will never leave us nor forsake us, right? We cling to that promise. But God then turns around and says you need to forsake sin. You need to forsake those thoughts. You need to forsake those actions. They cannot be part of the process. You cannot repeat them. So when he says here, uh, neither be weary of his correction, and as he continues to correct you, you know what you need to realize with that? Here's how that thought process changes. Oh, man, here I go again. Uh, I guess I blew it again. I'm such a loser. I guess I'm just such a sinner. I guess there's no hope for me. If that's your mentality, then you've got the wrong wrong idea in your heart, the wrong thought. Here's the great thing to think about. When you get a corrective action or correction from the Lord, he corrects you the first time, you take it and you go, oh, praise God. He loved me enough to tell me that I did something wrong. He loved me enough to tell me what the right thing to do is. You do it again. Same situation. God corrects you again. You know what's great about that? Those sit there and go, oh, give God glory and praise and say, Lord, thank you for giving me mercy and correcting me again. God, change the way you talk to yourself before you even start trying to change the way that you talk to people in the world. And yes, I did say talk to yourself because we all do it. We all do it. It's not a sign of mental illness, all right? <laughs> we all talk to ourselves. We all have those conversations, all right? So there has to be that mindset. There has to be that mentality of just saying, well, I'm going to praise God in this situation. I'm going to be thankful and give thanks to him that he even recognized that where I did wrong and that he was willing to put something or someone in place to correct that action so that I would know what to do. Even if it means I have to do it over and over and over and over again. That's the idea of the concept. Take a look here at uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 15. Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 and um, in verse 10, it says, Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. And he that hateth reproof shall die. 
Now, obviously, he's talking about some some consequences there uh, when somebody will not listen to the reproof part that we've talked about. But here he makes it very clear. He says, correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh away. And, and, and here's, here's, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here, here's where it gets really personal in our lives. When he says that it's grievous unto him that forsaketh away, we look at it as, okay, we're out of the will of God. We have to, we have to say that. We have to say we are not on the road that God is directing us into. We're on a different path. Whether it's the path of the world, path of a devil, path of our own choosing, or we're just deciding we're going to four by four it. Which is, well, dangerous. It's, 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 it's not good. And I, when I say four by four, and I'm talking about trying to go four by four and in a smart car. It's just, yeah, you're going to get stuck. It's not going to go, it's not going to go well. The first rock you come to, that thing's going to high center. I mean, you know, now the good thing is you'll be able to push it off, but you know, again, it's not intended for that purpose. There are ways that God has not intended and, and, uh, and, and purposed in our lives that we should be going. But he did intend and purpose one specific way. And that's Jesus Christ. Did he not say, I am the way? I am the way. A person that will not receive correction, a person that it becomes so grievous to them that they're becoming mournful and, and, and if you will, uh, deeply saddened by it, is a person that has forsaken who Christ is, has forsaken his will, has forsaken his principles, has forsaken his examples. Now, that's a hard thing for a person to realize. This is why when you start reading the book of Proverbs and you just kind of read it, you know, casually, it's like, oh, yeah, it kind of seems like common sense. You read a lot more into it, and then pretty soon you're just like, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because it starts getting spiritual as you start digging deeper. Some of it may be surface level, but there's a lot of this that is dealing straight with the heart and soul of a person and the way that they have the relationship with God. Take a look at another passage just to kind of bring this back to again to the same concept of who Jesus Christ is in Proverbs chapter 22. And in verse 15, it says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And everybody always says, oh, okay, see, there's, there, there, there's for, um, for using wooden spoons. And yes, I am a wooden spoon survivor. I have broken many of them against the backside of my skin. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm better for it because it was teaching me principles. It was teaching me correction. But this is, again, this is, this is, let's just kind of move aside from the, the physical surface level issue of corporal punishment. Let, let, let's move into what is the rod? What is the rod of correction? When Jesus Christ comes back to rule and reign, what comes out of his mouth? A rod 
His words are considered a rod. A rod is a symbol of authority. What is the authority in our life? God's word. We start talking about the rod of correction. We're talking about the word of God. You can spank a child all day long. It's not going to drive the foolishness from him. You correct the child using the word of God and teaching them the right thing to do, that will drive it far from them. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. There's the principle. The word of God must be present in the correction. The word of God must be present in the correction. Meaning we need to know what God says is sin. We need to know what God says is righteousness. We have to know what is good and what is evil. That's the concept. That's where discernment comes in. That's where judgment comes in. That's where choosing comes in. Decision-making processes. Take a look at Proverbs 29. Proverbs chapter 29. And take a look at uh, verse 17. Correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. And here's the principle. God gave correction for a reason. Many, many parents get frustrated because they're not correcting the right way when it comes to parenting. Now, I'm not talking about the child that is just being willful and refuses to listen to correction. There's a greater issue of rebellion in that, in that heart of the child. And, and again, the Word of God is going to take care of that. But again, they always have the choice of not listening. We always have a choice of not listening. Granted, it's not the right choice, but we always have that choice. But he makes it very clear here that this should be the desire. Because it brings about the peace. And if it means you have to continue to correct, and you 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 continue to correct, to the point where you're pulling your hair out, you continue to correct. How many times has God corrected us? How many times did he correct the nation of Israel? Well, he, 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 he kept quiet from him for 400 years at one point in time. Yes, he did. But then he sent a Savior. He sent their Messiah, as he promised them. He was ready to give them the kingdom, as he promised them. But only a remnant would listen. Turn to to Jeremiah here and and, and just get this principle again as we take a look at this in Jeremiah um, chapter... Oh, let's take a Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, I know we've mentioned this uh, before uh, fairly recently, but it's uh, it's an important principle. Jeremiah uh, 2, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore, and see that it is an evil thing and bitter, that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. That is a terrifying verse. When you start sitting and think about that, what, what the Lord's saying with that, 
He's saying it'll get to a point where your own sin is going to just start pointing you out. You know, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out over there in the book of Numbers, right? Now, now here's the interesting thing. We always talk about be sure your sin will find you out, and we always use that to, to strike some fear into the heart of a child about, you know, you know, getting them to think that you know all and, and that you see all and that their sin is going to come out some way. And you use it in the form of an interrogation process. Be sure your sin will find you out. And then they're like, oh, no, they already know. And they confess. I ate all the cookies. Right? Uh, no, that's not what we're talking about. When we start talking about be sure your sin will find you out, you know what it's going to do is it's going to bring the corrective pro- process right to your front door. It will find out exactly what's in your heart. That's what sin will do. Sin will show you your affections. Sin will show you your desires. Sin will show you where your heart is crooked. And sin will also show you where your thought life is out of alignment with the word of God. It will find you out. And here he's telling Israel, it's, that's what's happening. And you know what it's revealing? It's revealing that they have forsaken God and they just don't fear him anymore. Now, those are two real big things. To forsake and walk away from God and to just flat out say, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Now, I'm not talking about being afraid as in, you know, you know, you know, shaking our boots and stuff like that. No understanding what the fear of the Lord is. There's no fear of God. The holy, righteous God that created everything. The holy and righteous God that could just, you know, send fire down from heaven and consume you or have the earth open up and swallow you whole and take you alive down into the pit like he's done. Like, well, God wouldn't necessarily do that. Hey, people have been walking along the road and they got struck by lightning, hit by a meteor, alligator fell out of the sky. You name it, weird stuff. And you're just sitting there going, I don't know. <laughs> you know, is, is it something that just happened or is it something that God was using some corrective action? Not really necessarily for us to judge, but again, for us to understand, we need to have a fear of the Lord. Because again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. We definitely don't want to be a dullard. Take a look at chapter 5, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5. <clears throat> Nation of Israel is a good, good example for us to heed and follow we start talking about the way we live our Christian life. And um, here he says, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Yeah, that's a hard-hearted person. That's a hard-hearted person that will not receive correction. That's a person that is willful and is in, in full rebellion against God. And that is not a place you want to be. And here he's saying, look, you know, he sent things to them. He's done things to try to correct them. And what did they say? It said they did not receive correction. But I want to emphasize this. Correction must be received. It must be received with happiness. It must be received with thanksgiving. It must be received understanding the love of God. 
it must be received, understanding that God is trying to point you to righteousness and godliness. Take a look at uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, Jeremiah, verse uh, 28. says, But thou shalt say unto them, this is a nation uh, that uh, obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. I look at that, and the first the first nation that I think of is not the nation of Israel. I actually think of our own. Now, I know this is talking about Israel. From a doctrinal standpoint, it's talking about Israel. But I look at this very clearly. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. Everything that they say nowadays is just a flat-out lie. Somebody was arguing that abortion is the better choice because pregnancy kills. I'm like, first and foremost, in order to come up with that thought process, you have to be really so far gone from God, possessed of a devil, or have fried your brain on crack to come up with that thought process. That's the most ridiculous thing. But when we take a look at it in light of what God said about uh, the natural affection being gone, now we know why. Now we know why they say those things. But I take a look at this, and it's very clearly, it says, nor receiveth correction. They would not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. That becomes a problem. That becomes a problem. Because then, when that occurs, it is really hard for you to receive anything from God. It's a stumbling block. When you refuse to obey, when you refuse to be corrected, that, 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 that puts us, that puts that person, that puts me, if I do those things, in a position where I'm going to not listen to the truth. And I'm certainly not going to speak it. So it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem. I want you to turn to chapter 10 here, <clears throat> establishing this thought process of correction. <clears throat> Take a look at verse 23. Um, verse 24 is where we're going to get out, get at here, but I, I like verse 23. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to, re- uh, to direct his steps. Oh, Lord, correct me, but with judgment. Not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. When's the last time we prayed that? I'm just going to be honest with you. I've never prayed that. (laughs) I I remember reading that going, I'm not sure I even want to. But, but very clearly here, he, 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 here's the statement. Lord, correct me. But with judgment. That's like going into a court, stepping up there, and, and, and you're there for driving six miles an hour over the speed limit. And you're standing in front of the, the and, and the judge says, how do you plead? Oh, I'm guilty. 
By the way, I need you to correct me because I'm also guilty of not having insurance. I'm also guilty of my car isn't registered. I've been drinking and driving repeatedly. Um, I have, you know, you caught me going six miles an hour over the speed limit, but typically it's like 60 miles an hour over the speed limit. Um, you know, you start doing stuff like that and confessing and, and you're telling the judge to correct you. The judge is going to be like, uh, okay, well, we really can't do that. Not in this court. It's not how the court works, but, but we need to be willing to say, Lord, correct me. Lord, correct me. I, I, I don't want to be in a position where I think I'm so right that I think I'm more right than God. I don't ever want to be that. My confidence should never be in myself. My confidence shouldn't be in what some, 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 some person, some man taught me. My confidence is in Scripture. My confidence is in my God, my Savior, my Lord. It's not in me. So I need correction. It communicates His love to me. It communicates everything. It communicates that He was willing to die on the cross for me. Those are all things that, that are important that we have to enter into with this mentality. We have to desire it. So correction is something that, that, that is really, truly, is part of the Christian life. It's part of the Christian life. If you're living the Christian life and you have never been corrected, wow, um, I don't even know what to say to that. Um, I would first and foremost want to just say liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> because, I mean, who here is going to raise their hand and say, I have never been corrected of God? I'm not. Fear, fear of getting being struck dead where I sit. Um, yeah, and I'm sitting on a stool. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, again, I, I, that, this is, this is how we approach correction. We've got to learn to love it. We've got to learn to love it. It's going to be hard, but we've got to change the mindset. Remember, Romans 12, transformed mind. Somebody's like, what are you talking about? You want to, you, you want to be corrected? Yeah. If I'm wrong, I want to be corrected. Absolutely. It's the world that says, oh, no, 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 I, I don't, I don't want to ever want to be looked at as wrong. Maybe I was mistaken or misled. No, 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 no. Take responsibility. Take responsibility. So, so I, I want us to go over to Ephesians chapter four. And here's where we start talking about this issue of replacing. So now we've got to establish what we're thinking about with correction. But Ephesians 4 is not only the greatest chapter in the book, in the Bible, about how we communicate with one another. It's because it tells us how bad we do communicate and how we need to communicate. So it gives us the sin and then it gives us what is righteousness. You know, and we find more of it in here. So in Ephesians chapter 4, take a look at verse 22 is where it begins to start. He says, uh, we'll back up here just again to verse 20 for the context. He says, but ye have not so learned Christ. 
He's saying, this is not what you were told. This is not how, how, how you were being taught. He says, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So he gives us this example. He gives us a, the, the, this principle of biblical replacement. Right? So we've got an action over here which he has said which he has said is former. We know what we are is new. He's also talked about it as the old man, and we know that we have a new man in us. He's also saying that it's corrupt. It's corrupt. You ever go to pull something out for food and you start cooking it. I did this one time. I was making an Alfredo sauce and I grabbed a hold of the Parmesan cheese and I went to go pour it in. And as I poured it in, I noticed that it was green little flecks floating in there and I did not add any basil or parsley. I look immediately look in the container of the Parmesan and sure enough, I had fuzzy little friends. And, uh, you know, there's people that will say, oh, just pick the fuzzy little friends out. Y- you know what? Um, you go ahead and do that. <clears throat> Knowing me, I'd be allergic to that mold anyways, and I'd wind up, you know, having another surgery or some stupid thing like that, going to the ER in an ambulance or whatever, getting shot with epinephrine and all sorts of crazy things. So I'm going to avoid that. What happened to it? Well, it corrupted Something got in there and corrupted it. Stuff that's sealed isn't doesn't get corrupted. So we understand that sin is corruption. It's corruptible. It corrupted our life to the point of death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Sin slew me, Paul says. So we, we understand that concept. It's corrupt. It's corrupt. Somebody hands us a, a thing of water and says, well, it's 99.9% pure. They, they always put that on the, the spring waters on there. And you're like, well, I want to know what that other part that might not be pure is. What are we talking about there? Are we talking about arsenic? Or are we talking about, you know, cyanide? Because, you know, a little bit of cyanide goes a long way. So what are we talking about here? We don't want the corruption. And he says it's according to deceitful lust. So not only do we have this lust, which means something that is lust is something that we want that is outside of what God wants. I like that definition of lust. Lust is what we want that's outside of what God wants for us. And what that means is even how we obtain it and the attitude towards its obtaining. So it's all-encompassing when it talks about lust. It's not just sitting there going, oh, I want a $300,000 car. No, 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 no. 
you know, you got money for a $300,000 car and you're willing to pay the maintenance fees on that of, you know, $20,000 every time you do an oil change. Well, hey, I got some more power to you. But, um, you know, if a person does that, then fine. Okay. And Ecclesiastes says, you know, that's free your labor. Fine. Uh, I think personally, I think it's a waste. But, um, but, I, but I'll say this. If the person got it because, well, they embezzled money, they robbed a bank, they stole an inheritance, that was part of the lust because they had to have it, so they committed another sinful act in order to obtain it. So it goes and talks about how we obtain those things when we start talking about lust. But I want to also focus on that descriptor. Deceitful. When you are deceived, it's not truthful. You ever get an email from a Nigerian prince that has like $5 million that he wants to share with you? Some sort of email that says, you just won the lottery. You have $10 million. You just need to send us all of your bank account information, your social security card, your mother's maiden name, your first dog you ever had, and your first car you ever owned, place where you were born, where you met your spouse, and all your security questions. And we will go ahead and send you that in due time. Again, liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay? Um, those are all deceitful, right? We would hopefully never fall for those. Hopefully we would never fall for those. But we fall for the lust part all the time, don't we? And why is that? Because generally we don't know what the will of God is. And when we don't know what the will of God is, we're going to replace it with whatever we think the will of God is. Thinking what we know, or thinking that we know what the will of God is versus knowing the will of God are two different things. One's right, one's wrong. They both involve the will of God. But one is a knowing, one is a I think I know. Who would you want? A surgeon that says, I know exactly what I need to go in there and do. Versus a surgeon that goes, yeah, I, I think I might know. <laughs> but let's go ahead and do it anyways. Get away from me. <laughs> Get away from me. You don't want that. You don't want that. But he described this. This is, this is, this is the sinful stuff. But look at how he describes the good stuff. He talks about being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And what do we do? We put on the new man. We're putting off those old things, but we're putting on the new man. Everybody always likes things that are new. Jesus Christ is always new. Aren't his mercies new every morning? Leviticus, or Lamentations chapter 3. That's an important principle for us to understand. But here he is talking about new. And he says, very clearly, it's in righteousness and true holiness. Instead of the sinful things that are going to cause you harm, We've got what is right, and we've got what is holy. Not fake holiness, 
not hypocrisy, not feigning, not faking, but true holiness, the holiness of God. That should be what we desire. Let's say we've got a question. Well, is this right or is this right? Why is it wrong to do this? So on and so forth. From a biblical scriptural principle, it's always to God be the glory. If you cannot give glory to God when you do it, it ought not be done. End of story. Well, it never says I can't smoke pot in the Bible. Does it bring glory to God? Absolutely not. You're not sober. Doesn't bring glory to God. Does it please God? Revelation chapter 4. The other one was over there in Second Peter three. Does it bring? Does does it please God? If it doesn't please God, then it's not holy. If it's not holy, it won't please God. If it involves anything that's deceitful, is based off of our lusts, is based off of corruption, is based off of the old former conversation of sin then we have to say, no, I'm going to seek the holiness of God. I want to bring him all the glory, honor, praise, and please him with every area of my life. Take a look at what he says as we move through this a little bit further. In verse 25, he says, Wherefore, putting away lying, let every man speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So here's the situation. I've mentioned this many times before. When is a liar not a liar? When he stops lying? No. When he tells the truth. Stopping lying is just stopping lying. You want to become a truth teller, that will eliminate the lie. That will drive it far from you. So you start telling the truth. You start telling the truth. No deceit. No hidden agendas. You're just truthful. Now again, he says that you need to speak the truth in love so that you may grow up. I like that part over there in verse 15. May grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You speak truth in love, you're growing up. You eliminate those two things from your speech, you're immature. It's one of those, I know you are, but what am I, type mentality, okay? But he gives an example. Lie is a sin. Truth is righteousness. There's the replacement. The sinful behavior with the righteous biblical behavior. Take a look at another one as we go down here a little bit further. In verse uh, 28, he says, let him stole, steal no more. But rather let him labor. And some people will just start stop right there and say, well, yeah, you, know, you, you, you can make a thief, not a thief, by just putting them to work. Nope. 
Some of the biggest thieves I've known were hardest workers you'd ever seen. I remember one one time in a pharmacy, and that person was uh, pilfering uh, over, uh, I think it was over a thousand uh, a week of benzodiazepines from the pharmacy so that they could go get high. A thousand of them a week. Like, how in the world could you even function? But they were a hard worker. Did a good job. I mean, did a great job. But they were a thief. So that's not the, that's not the replacement thing. This is where I, I'm going back to the, the whole idea of we have to find the right biblical replacement. The right biblical replacement is, says, let him that stole steal more, no, no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. Instead of being a thief, which is a taker, he becomes a laborer that is a giver. He begins to see the need in people. He begins to see with a changed heart what the person, the people around him need desperately. And he willingly gives of himself and what he has for the purpose of glorifying God because Christ said it is better to give than to receive. So rather than being somebody over here that says, I'm owed this, he says, I owe nothing to, uh, or, or I, I will not owe uh, um, any man anything. I will not owe that person love. That's what that whole verse is about, by the way. People try to say, oh, well, the Bible says you know, we're supposed to owe no man anything. Yeah, it's talking about love, withholding love from somebody. Not finances. Biblical action. Knowing to do what is right and failing to do it, God says it's what? Sin. So we see here that he gives us this, and I want to finish this this part here, because he says here in verse 29, he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So we've got, okay, your words. Look, I understand. We get into points in time where we get into bad habits with our words. We say dumb things. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, it was weak. <laughs> Should have been Pentecostal in here, right? We say dumb things. Lord, correct me. So here's what you do. We say things that don't please God. And I'm not talking about cursing. Swearing, filthy jokes. I'm talking about saying mean, hurtful things. I'm talking about saying, uh, trying to say that you're speaking truth, but you don't say it with love. You grieve the Holy Spirit of God in verse 30 there when we do that. Majority of problems that are in relationships, and I'd say over 80%, close to almost 90%, of problems in relationships are because people cannot communicate effectively. Human beings are poor communicators. Go look at the Tower of Babel. So what do we have here? 
He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. How in the world can you communicate God's grace, his work, his righteousness, his holiness, to a person that's listening to you? How, how do you build them up, not puff them up, big difference, build them up in Christ, encouraging, exhorting, all of those things that we're commanded to do. How, how do we do that? Well, we have to be very mindful of what we say. It means we got to think about it. we got to ponder it in our heart. That may mean that you take a moment to answer. How many stupid things have we ever said in haste? Mm -hmm. A lot. A lot. But here, here, here's the problem. We do that, we're going to grieve God. When we do it the right way, we're going to please Him. Right? Now, again, here, here, here's where it comes back. Just because somebody says something bad to you doesn't mean that you get to return that. Just because they fire the first salvo doesn't mean you level all three 16-inch guns and fire the whole turret at them. As you're turning the other two turrets to fire all nine 16-inch guns at them. In case you don't know what a battleship is. Sorry. <clears throat> but, you know, it's going to blow people out of the water. It's not your job to blow them out of the water. Go over to Romans chapter 12 where he says you need to change the way you think. And what does he say? He says, don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't respond back the same way. Somebody says something to you and they're snippy, don't turn around and be snarky. Somebody says something to you in anger, don't turn around and anger back at them. How do you edify them? Oh, real good, real good way of edifying is, is, is if, if they turn to you and they say something and they're, you know, saying, hey, you shouldn't have said that. And you, you know, then you, good way to edify is just say, I'm sorry. I apologize. Best way to do it. Because he goes into even further detail, and I'm going to end with this, in verse 31, where he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. All those things that he just named there, he said, you need to put them away. That's the stuff that's sinful. Let's put it away. In verse 32, it says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's the mindset. That's the Christian behavior. That's the biblical behavior. Bitterness, forgive them. Don't let bitterness exist. Put it away. Bust out the box of forgiveness. You get angry and wrathful in a, in, in a sinful way. What does he say? Be tenderhearted. We're all clamor and making noise and a bunch of evil speaking. Well, what do we do? Be kind. Be kind. So he just answered how you can go about edifying in verse 31 or in verse 32. So we begin to understand this concept of replacement. 
Now, over the next uh, you know week or so, we'll, we'll we'll take a look at this and why it's important. But also at the same time, we're also going to start taking a look at the word disciple. Why discipleship is important, and why discipline is its root, and why discipline is important. So we'll see more about that in, in, as far as uh, getting to this point of where we realize the best way to make sure that uh, change is permanent. And we'll talk a little bit more about forsaking again uh, next week, oh Lord willing. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the time. Thank you again, Lord, for just an opportunity to just dig under your word, see what you have to tell us about correction and uh, doing that which is right and putting away those things that are sinful. Lord, I pray that we would just have that heart and that desire to please you and to honor you by following these things that we see here. That, Lord, if there's a question about whether or not something is sinful or something is right, that, Lord, you would give us that correction from your word. You would show us. You'd give us that judgment and discernment that we may please you and honor you. Pray, Lord, you take us home safely. Thank you again for all that you've done for us. This I ask and pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.